to look at verses 4 to 7 of the epistle to Philemon. Last week, you may remember, we finished our consideration of the introduction to the epistle to Philemon, the first unit of this letter, verses 1 to 3. And we labeled that section the aperture or opening of the work as a whole. We noted that the aperture contains a chiastic structure, which embraces the senders and recipients in Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. The next section of this letter is verses 4 to 7, which also contains a chiastic structure. But we begin with verse 4. And verse 4, when we were dealing with the structure, the broad and brief structure of this letter, verse 4, we had given a label. Does anyone remember the label that we gave to verse 4? Or as you looked at the verse, what would you label this section? Prayer. Not quite. Thanksgiving. Nancy? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is the Thanksgiving section. Paul generally has a Thanksgiving section in his epistles. And he uses the Greek word, Eucharisto, here, which I've printed there in Greek and transliterated for you in English, from which we get the word Eucharist, which is commonly used, particularly in high church or sacerdotal communions, to refer to the Lord's Supper. That term is neutral, It has no pejorative connotation, and it is the custom of those churches to use it, and there's nothing wrong with that. The fact that we in Reformed circles don't use the term is based upon our inclination to avoid any sacerdotal suggestion to the Lord's table, but the Lord's table and communion is more familiar to our tradition. However... That word Eucharist or Eucharisto is used by our Lord Jesus and you have two passages there which indicate his citation or his use of that term at the Last Supper. When he gave thanks and broke the bread, Paul repeats that word. Uh, So the verb is based upon the biblical text and, you know, has that in its defense. I think I saw your hand up, Randy. Sacerdotal has to do with a priestly order uh, and a more, shall we say, what do I want to say, dynamic force to the sacraments. That is that they actually convey grace, convene grace. Roman Catholic Church is a sacerdotal communion. Eastern Orthodox churches are sacerdotal communions. You, you're looking like a deer in the headlights. Quite get the distinction. 
they, they enforce it more, what, what do you mean? No, they, they, they think that there is power, supernatural power oh, in the element. Okay, I got it. Okay. Kind of like the Holy Grail or something. Uh, not, not quite, but <laughs> it's the priest or the officiant of the Lord's Supper is actually able to convey the supernatural grace of Christ into the elements. Uh, that's a sacerdotal approach to the sacraments. That's a sacerdotal church. The priest has supernatural powers. Yes, he brings, he brings by the by the uh, uplifting of the host, for instance, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, when he, he says the proper prayer and lifts up the host, he's actually <clears throat> becoming a vehicle of supernatural power. That the grace of God comes through him to the sacrament. So that's the reason that you, you are in desperate need of a priest before you die. You're in desperate need of a priest to baptize or somebody to baptize uh, if you're in danger of death as an infant, etc. All right. My point here is to, to segue off of Paul's use here of the term Eucharisto, the verb, I give thanks, or I thank God, uh, <clears throat> to just enforce this term, Eucharist, which is used in Christian circles, not necessarily Reformed Christian circles, but there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. That's my point. It's a neutral term. It's derived from Jesus giving thanks at the Last Supper. Now, this <clears throat> verse contains the captatio benevolentiae, which is a term that literally means seeking of benevolence. This is an oratorical or rhetorical technique, a rhetorical style, a piece of rhetorical style, in which the one who is speaking or writing, as the case may be, builds a rapport with his audience. He's trying to capture the goodwill of the audience. And so he structures his remarks in such a way as to induce or to incline the audience to look upon him with favor. Now, there's actually an example of this in the book of Acts. In fact, in the same Incident. There are two examples of this in the book of Acts. So if you'll turn back to Acts 24 for a moment, we'll take a look at Paul's appearance before Festus in chapter 24. And we want to point out this captatio benevolentiae. In verses 2 to 4, if someone has it, Please read it out. Acts 24, verses 2, 3, and 4. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us speak. Thank you. 
Now, you'll notice that Tertullus, who perhaps was a lawyer uh, who has been called to more or less prosecute Paul before Festus, begins with this appeal to Felix's goodwill. And so he's seeking to earn Felix's approval or his favor uh, by describing some of the benevolent reforms, mentions peace and the excellence of his government, etc. So here is Paul's nemesis here using this technique rhetorically, uh, oratorically, in order to gain the hearing of whoever else was in that room uh, or in that audience, as well as Felix himself, who is the governor. Now, let's read verse 10 as well. And when the governor, this is Felix, had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul actually does the same thing. He commends Felix for being a judge of the nation, and he indicates that he's happy to make his defense before him. Now, this is not as elaborate a captatio benevolentiae as Tertullus's. We can... We're not going to take time to enter into why Tertullus does what he does with his and why Paul is so brief with his. But nonetheless, we just point out that even Paul is aware of this technique and he uses it not only in his letter to Philemon, he actually uses it in his defense before Felix, though he uses it there much more briefly. <clears throat> All right, so this is a a, a standard oratorical or rhetorical technique, and Paul is taking advantage of it here at the beginning of uh, his address to Philemon particularly. Now, it has been suggested by some writers that this fourth verse is a bridge unit in this letter. They're observing that often in Paul's Letters, the thanksgiving portion is a transition to the body of the rest of the epistle. In other words, it's like a point over which Paul begins to ingratiate the audience to himself, like a bridge to endearing them, his hearers or readers, to himself. I'm not going to quibble about that. I'm only observing it. Uh, There is no bridge unit. There is no Thanksgiving section in the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, nor in Titus. And so it is a pattern that he uses most of the time, but he doesn't use it all the time. He, however, does use the Thanksgiving here. And the issue is whether the Thanksgiving of verse 4 is part of a larger unit or is simply a bridge in and of itself. I'm going to try to make a case for the fact that verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 are an integral Thanksgiving unit and bridge transition to the body of the letter, which begins in verse 8. However, I will detail that later on. 
All right. <clears throat> Any questions to this point? Now, let's look at how Paul patterns this thanksgiving <clears throat> by asking who is the object of his thanksgiving, his giving of thanks. God is the object. What is the manner? That is, how does Paul give thanks? Prayer. 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 Yes. Yes. Uh, How does he give thanks? What comes after God? Always. The adverb always. He gives thanks always. Not in your new international NIV? No, another indication of its inferiority. Oh, it is in there, but it's before the verb instead of after the verb. Okay, so I I retract my criticism. Uh, In this case, I retract my criticism of the NIV. All right, now... When I asked about the manner of his giving thanks, the emphasis of the adverb here is that he is continually thanking God. This is an ongoing habit of Paul. Well, you say, what else would we be doing if we were giving thanks to God? Well, we could be doing it in a perfunctory manner. We could do it, be doing it by just rote, by rote, uh, repeating, uh, collects or prayers that have been made up, prayers of thanks that have been made up, but they do in many liturgical churches. They just read it. They're, they're really never, <clears throat> they never, they never absorb it. It never becomes a part of them. But Paul is underscoring the fact that this is a matter of, of intense drama with him. This is an intense matter of his feeling <clears throat> with respect to God. He's always giving thanks in his prayers to God. So some of you know that little anagram about what composes a genuine prayer, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. <clears throat> the T in A-C-T-S is thanksgiving, which should be a part of any prayer <clears throat> at any time. It certainly was a part of Paul's prayers because he underscores the fact that he always, every time he prays, he always continually thanks God. Now, the cause of this thanksgiving. Why is he giving thanks? For their faith and love. He has heard of the faith and love of whom? No. Philemon. He has heard of the faith and love of Philemon for whom? For all the saints. That's the people with halos around their heads. I don't see any halo around your Christians. For all Christians, yes. The term here is holy ones, literally, hagios in the Greek, which means ones who are set apart, set apart unto the Lord Jesus Christ and unto obedience to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. <clears throat> All right, now the content of Paul's thanksgiving. What is the content of this thankful prayer? 
He's thankful for what? Verse 6. What word jumps out at you from that verse? Active. Sorry, Bob, I didn't catch it. Active. Active? Mm, no. Active? No. Knowledge. Knowledge is one, but before knowledge is what? Okay. His fellowship. He's thankful for the fellowship of Philemon's faith. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we want to to ask a little bit about that later on, but right now, the content of his thanks with respect to what he's thanking God for always in Philemon's instance is the fellowship of his faith and his knowledge of every good thing in Christ in Philemon. So verse 6 tells you that Paul is specific about two particular things in Philemon's own Christian life the fellowship of his faith, and the knowledge of every good thing that is in him, that is in in Philemon, in Christ, or for Christ's sake. And the conclusion here in verse 7, the conclusion is signaled by that word for, which can also be translated because, And here, in verse 7, he expands upon what he had said in verses 5 and 6. He communicates his joy and comfort for Philemon's love as a brother in Christ. All right, now, we have isolated five separate elements in this prayer of thanksgiving any one of which could be a sermon in itself. In other words, this is not just Paul was praying. Now let's get on to the next section of this letter. No, Paul is telling us a great deal about his prayer life here. And it's a matter for our own reflection and consideration as we think about how Paul in Christ Jesus is praying for others, Philemon and other Christians. All right, now, the last thing to note is the reciprocal nature or potential reciprocal nature that is present in these verses, particularly in this prayer of Paul. He is praying for whom again in this section? Philemon. Philemon. Now, if there were reciprocity, what would we want to find? Marge? Philemon would be praying for Paul. Do you find that anywhere in this letter? Through your prayers, verse 22. Yes, verse 22. I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. So, there is a reciprocal relationship in prayer here. Paul praying for Philemon, and then he knows Philemon will pray for him, which is one of the reasons he said, through your prayers, I shall be delivered to you. Now, this reciprocal relationship is important to this epistle. We have noted this mirror relationship of those in Christ and Christ in them. 
So here is Philemon in Christ, Paul in Christ, Paul reflected in Christ, Philemon reflected in Christ, Christ reflected in Paul in Philemon. So there's this mutuality of identity. There's this mutuality of union with Christ. There's this mutuality of participation. And therefore, there's this mutuality of prayer. There is a mutual prayer relationship between Paul and Philemon because they are bound in union in Christ Jesus. All right, now in verse 5, any questions to this point? In verse 5, Paul says, I hear of your love. Paul had heard of Philemon's love. How had he heard about Philemon's love? Had he ever been to Colossae? Had Paul ever been to Colossae? No, he had never been to Colossae. So he had never been to Philemon's house where the church met. That's one of the reasons in verse 22 he's hoping to go there. Because he's never been there. Well, how then, in verse 5, does he know about Philemon's love? Randy? Onesimus has reported it. Remember, our narrative here is that Onesimus has run away from Philemon for some reason, and he has ended up in Rome where Paul is in prison. So he's reporting upon Philemon's character, Philemon's faith, Philemon's Christian faith and love. That's how Paul has heard about about Philemon. But in this fifth verse... We have something that Paul never does anywhere else. He places love before faith. You will comb the epistles of Paul, and you will always find faith and love. There is only one place in Paul's epistle where you will find love and faith. Now we ask ourselves, why did he break his pattern? Why is love primary here and faith in the secondary position? What are your thoughts? Why does he do this? Love is the expression of his faith, and yet he could have done that in the epistles to the Colossians. Could have done that, especially in the epistles to the Philippians. So why does he say faith and love in those letters, but here, love and faith? All right, so it, it is out of the context or out of the situation where he's emphasizing in the first place Philemon's love for this slave who has run away, but who has been changed, as we'll learn later on. So he places the primary emphasis upon love here because of the poignancy of the emotions, the poignancy of the situation, the poignancy of the drama. 
And it is especially Philemon's love, not only to Onesimus, that Paul hopes to stir up, but also commending him for his love to the saints, which he indicates here, as well as his love to Paul. So Paul is in this initial listing of the attribute of love. He is initially focusing upon that into which he wants to commend and fold Philemon. He wants to fold him into more of that love to the saints, more of that love to Paul the Apostle himself, and more of love in Christ to Philemon, this reborn slave. So he places love here at the start of this, this, of this, this verse in order to place the emotional force, the affectional force in the forefront of his appeal. Remember, he is trying to capture the benevolence of Philemon. He's using a rhetorical pattern here in order to gain Philemon's ear and also his goodwill. However, some writers have argued that Paul is putting pressure on Philemon. Now, I'm using that word from one contemporary Pauline scholar, James D.G. Dunn. That word, what do you think about that? What do you think that Paul is pressuring Philemon with this language? It's subtle, but I can see it possible. By building him up and saying what he has done and how he has refreshed him, later comes with it again. So. No, you think it's a possibility he could be pressuring him. Okay? And any anybody to the contrary? Art? Well, it seems to me he's just pointing out some facts. First of all, he's pointing out what's been reported to him that Philemon has love for the saints. And then later point out that Onesimus is one of the saints. So it follows that Okay, so you're arguing for the fact that there's no pressure here. It's just a statement of the case. Okay? Anybody else? Scott, I saw your hand waving back there. I don't think it's pressure. This pressure involves constraining someone to do something they still don't want to do. I think he's trying to, uh, he's trying to refresh his heart, uh, move his heart, stir his heart, so that his start heart can be reminded of the love he has for all the saints and all the appreciation for him, and stir his heart up to that love and essence of receiving. So you don't think pressure is a possibility? You... I think it's the right word. I think he's encouraging him to go in that direction, but not through pressure. Not, not by pressure, okay? <clears throat> Marge, you, you want to? I kind of think that Randy, when he said it's a subtle pressure, he says, you know, I could have commanded you to do this, but I, I prefer to appeal to you. He says that, you know, in a couple of places, he said, I want you. I want your goodness to be your own, not because I'm pressuring you. When you say that, I'm not going to pressure you, but. You know, it's kind of a but there. Uh, I want to hold off on consideration of that language, okay? I just want to focus here at this 
introductory or this Thanksgiving section because this is the first thing that Philemon would have read. Uh, <clears throat> yes, way in the back there. Could he be reminding Philemon that he has loved and he has faith and just reminding him that he is capable of extending this to others? Okay, so you're saying somewhat what Paul or what Scott's saying. Uh, it's a kind of encouragement motif. Dick, did you? Yeah, I'm going to say I think it's too early in the body of the letter for him to start putting the squeeze on on Philemon. I I think here he's establishing the right to be heard. Okay. All right. Well, yes. Back to you, Art. Not yet, at any rate, right? Okay, <clears throat> good observation. All right, now, uh, you've, you've grappled a little bit with this suggestion. If, in fact, pressure is what Paul's using here, then what is he doing to Philemon? If he is pressuring him with this language, is he manipulating him? Yes, this is this is a potential manipulatory device if in fact he's pressuring him. Is he disingenuous here if he's pressuring him? What's disingenuous mean? It's kind of phony fake. Phony fake, Marge? Too strong. Hey, less than straightforward. Less than straightforward? Okay. Insincere. Disingenuous, insincere. Do you think Paul is insincere here? No. So if, if, if pressure here means manipulation, we don't like it, right? We don't think Paul's doing that. If pressure here means, and, and I'm quoting James D.G. Dunn. This is his word, okay? He is actually accusing Paul of pressuring it, which means, well, are you accusing him of manipulating Philemon? Are you accusing him of being disingenuous in his use of this language, namely that he's insincere? <clears throat> or... Is he artificial? Now, what do I mean by art- artificial? He's flattered, and he doesn't really mean that he's uh, loving and so forth. He's okay, he's buttering him up. Okay, so he's contriving the argument. All right, <clears throat> you, you see the pit of this language, pressuring. Okay. And some writers even use the term manipulation here. They see Paul like themselves. That in fact, he's a 21st century postmodernist. And that the way he deals with people is to manipulate them, to uh, flatter them, to use terms which will engage them on that person's behalf so that that person will look better and get his or her way as the case may be. All right. Yeah, yeah, but more perverse than that, okay? Because that's a fairly neutral benevolence statement. It's not necessarily artificial and contrived or manipulative. So um, we come back to... Uh, what most of you have concluded that Paul is not pressuring 
him. In fact, I don't think he's pressuring him at all. And that brings me to Ernst Wendland. Now, I've mentioned Wendland before, this marvelous literary semantic scholar who is in the heart of deepest Africa and has been there for almost 50 years. Ernest Wendland has uh, a, a very fine book on rhetoric, and he's done a number of rhetorical studies, including a rhetorical study of Philemon. He has this phrase in that essay on Philemon called deliberate discourse, which you see on your, your handout. What's Wendland driving at? Deliberate discourse. Well, in concert with what Art and some others of you have said, what Wendland is arguing is that Paul is using language intentionally. Intentionally to pressure? No. Intentionally to manipulate? No. Intentionally to be artificial or flatter? No. Paul is using language intentionally to persuade Philemon to hear Paul's plea for Onesimus. This is deliberate discourse, stating the facts of the case, if you will, but the point is, I want Philemon to listen to my plea. And so I am commending him for that which is real and genuine in him. And it is there because Christ is in Philemon by the grace of God. He can commend that sincerely and genuinely and do so with a deliberate intent to perform the captatio benevolentiae. Randy? Well, isn't it uh, persuasion and gentle pressure in a certain sense? <laughs> no, I, I, want pressure out, I want pressure out of this discussion. <clears throat> okay, the reason I want pressure out of this discussion is I want you to see that this language of interchange is relational language which is anchored in Christ. There is no pressure here. There is no manipulative maneuvering here. There is no artifice or disingenuousness. This is sincere, genuine mutuality of being and Christo. So pressure would mean more else. Yeah. Contrived, constrained, as, as uh, Scott pointed out, constraining the conscience. No. Moving the conscience, drawing the conscience. Yes, Art. So along, the, I mean, along the lines of what you're saying about deliberate discourse, when Paul says, because I hear about, I mean, there's probably hundreds of things, good things that he heard about. And he's picking out the one that's the most pertinent to this, to this letter. That's fair. Pick out the one. Yes, yes. Yes, De deliberately focusing on that which is genuine in Philemon. You know, not in, not in a way of trying to manipulate him by what is genuine in him, but to commend him for that. And he picked out the very quality that he heard about. Yes, particularly his love. Yes. You again? What, your hand went up again. You're, you're in a protest mode. You're in continual, continual protest mode. I'm going to be great, and he's going to be 
<laughs> Any other? There's another protester back there. All right. Not until he, he reads the rest of this letter. So at this point in the letter, he doesn't know that. But he will know it by the time he gets down to verse 10. So could Paul be guiding him to use the, the faith and love that he has to accept the change in the message? Yes, yes, that's right. That's what he's, that's what he's going to get to. So he's setting up that that appeal and that uh, dramatic plea. You, know, you see, it's, it's, it's unfolding in terms of this reciprocal, mutual, in Christ relationship. And that brings us to the reciprocal element there on your outline. <clears throat> now, what I'm driving at here is that this language... <clears throat> commending Philemon's love and faith, is a mirror of reciprocity. A mirror reciprocity in Christ, as I have underscored, Paul and Philemon jointly united in the mutual, reciprocal, mirror reflection love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have experienced... The love of God in Christ, Philemon, you have experienced the love of God in Christ. We are mutually bound, united, joined in, identified with this reciprocal reflection of the love of Christ in one another. All right, any other questions? We're still not done with verse 5. But we'll take a break because the next section is a bit complicated uh, in order to solve an exegetical issue. So you need to be uh, get your oxygen flowing and blood flowing, get your coffee and your sweets, get your sugar high before you come back. Now we're back to verse 5. And the expression, I hear of your faith towards the Lord Jesus, and may we insert towards all the saints. We have a problem here. Why do we have a problem here? Well, faith towards, if we understand towards as directed to, or directed toward, faith directed toward the Lord Jesus means faith which relies, leans, as Apostle John at the Last Supper, leaning on Jesus' breast. There's a biblical portrait of faith. Faith is leaning on Jesus' breast. So faith directed toward the Lord Jesus is proper definition of the object of faith. But notice that he also includes all the saints. 
Is that a problem? Come on, all you Protestants out there. Is that a problem? Faith directed towards all the saints. Faith relying on all the saints. Faith leaning on all the saints. Faith depending upon the invocation, intercession of the saints. He would have said, in the Lord Jesus, then I think he had a problem. But toward, it has a different sense than in. Yeah, but he doesn't say that. This is He says, towards the Lord Jesus. So we've got a problem here, at least those of us who are evangelicals and are reading attentively here. We've got an apparent difficulty. Uh, is Paul suggesting that faith has an object of being directed toward the saints? All right, so let's attempt to solve the problem. Let's think about the issue here as we look at the larger section of 5, 6, and 7, which, as we will point out and already have in our structural paradigm, is a chiastic pattern. Let's take a look at the occurrence of love and faith in 5, 6, and 7. Let's start with verse 7. In verse 7, what does he talk about when he's talking about love there? And he's derived much joy and comfort. From your love? From your love, my brother. Your love of? Of the saints. Of the saints. All right, so in verse 7, love is directed toward the saints. In verse 6, faith is directed towards Christ. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective for every good thing which is in you in Christ or unto Christ. In verse 5, we have faith toward the Lord Jesus. So their faith is object, the Lord Jesus or Christ, is consistent with what we said about relying upon Christ. Love, in verse 7, is simply an elaboration of affection for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. Is that, therefore, parallel in verse 5, namely, is the love of the saints in verse 7 also to be paralleled in verse 5? Namely, that he's not talking about faith toward the saints. He's talking about love toward the saints. Well, Denison is a long way away from faith and love. In other words, faith toward the Lord Jesus, that's in one clause. But love toward the saints, that's way at the end. All right, I begin by noting in this outline on the bottom of your first page that there is a symmetry here. Twice over, faith is directed to the Lord Jesus or to Christ. Twice over. Twice over, love is directed toward the saints. 
It's interesting that love folds in or sandwiches in faith. Love to the saints kind of features or squeezes or makes more prominent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That symmetry, I think, can solve this dilemma in its own right. I saw a hand up in the back. Scott? I was just going to say, for people who are reading the NIV, this dilemma might not be clear. Right. Because the NIV actually puts them together, puts, you know, love in the same. So, love for the same. So, you might point out, if you haven't already, the Greek. The Greek is on page two. Oh, you have the Greek out there. I'm looking at the Greek somewhere else. Okay, sorry. Now, I think that the proposal at the bottom of page one of your outline is a helpful solution. But I'm going to make even a more complex suggestion as we look at the Greek and the English translation of the Greek. Actually, the English translation first and the Greek that follows. So he says in verse 5, I hear of, understood, I hear of your love. And there's the Greek. Then he says, and the faith which you have, you understood toward the Lord Jesus, and. And I have the Greek. Highlighting the and, that is the chi, K-A-I, at the beginning and end of that clause. And then finally, unto all the saints, and the Greek follows there. Now, what do you notice about that? Once again, we're dealing with patterns of symmetry. We notice the symmetry of love to the saints in verses 5 and 7, and then faith to the Lord Jesus, faith to Christ in verses six, 5 and 6. So, we had the symmetry in that previous outline, which we're attempting to show that faith is directed, or love rather, is directed towards the saints. What do we see here? What kind of symmetry do we see here? Count them up. How many Greek words in that first phrase? You see them in parentheses. How many Greek words? Four. Four. How many Greek words in the last phrase? Four. Four. How many Greek words in between, leaving out the chi at the beginning and the chi at the end? Eight. Eight. Four. Four. Sandwiching. Eight. With the chi on either side of the eight-fold clause, almost as if it brackets it, almost as if it's like a wall around it, almost as if it's marking it out for special distinction. In the first clause, love has no object. I hear of your love. Love of what? Love of whom? There is no object to the love in that first clause. In the second clause, faith has a clear object. The preposition toward or pros in the Greek is there. Your faith towards the Lord Jesus. Clear object in the second clause. 
In the third clause, we have a clear object. We have the preposition ace, which means unto or to or into. <clears throat> clear object with no apparent subject. So where's the apparent subject of the object, the subjectless clause number three? And where is the apparent object of the subject clause line one? In my opinion, what the apostle has done is he has given us a verse which reads as follow in English. I hear of your love, parenthesis, even the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus also, close parenthesis, unto all the saints. I hear of your love unto all the saints with a parenthetical clause in between. And he does it symmetrically. He does it with four, eight, and four, and buttresses, the clause in between, that is the parenthetical clause, with a double chi, chi at chi. Brilliant solution to the problem. Don't mind saying so myself. I just saw it last night. But at any rate, <laughs> yes, go ahead, Art. In the Greek, is it common to have chi's at both ends? You can have a chi, chi like this, and so <clears throat> uh, it can be a both end kind of chi clause. Okay, uh, I'm suggesting that he's doing this intentionally to keep the focus on the love of the saints, but he doesn't want to leave out the faith that he has, which has its own object, and so he makes it, I'm saying, a more or less parenthetical. Right. Is that done grammatically? I don't know. I'm not that much of a Greek expert. But I like the fact that it's there. It looks neat particularly since it has that four-by-four four pattern in it. In other words, this is a regular symmetrical paradigm. He's got to be thinking about what he's doing when he's writing these lines. Granted, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I grant all that, but nonetheless, this is a parallelism of carefully planned expression. Now, the bottom line here is that in two ways, both in terms of the symmetry of the use of love and faith in this section, 5, 6, and 7, in two ways we can support the fact that love in verse 5 is directed toward the saints. It is not faith which is directed toward the saints. Okay. Now, the second way of explaining that, just concentrating on verse 5 by itself, is to indicate that Paul, through a masterpiece of uh, symmetrical parallelism, has made it very clear that love is directed toward the saints and faith is directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And he places the faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ in parenthesis so it won't be confused with being directed toward the saints. Randy. Uh, that's expressing toward faith toward the Lord Jesus. I don't recognize that much else in the rest of the New Testament. Is that's pretty unique expression, is it, or not? No, it's directed, it's directed toward. You can say faith towards, okay? Your faith is towards Christ. It's directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The expression is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's that too. But you see, there's, there, <laughs> you can faith in, faith toward, faith about. All kinds of prepositions you could use. Right, okay. But if it's towards Christ, you see, that's the object. 
If it's about Christ, that's the object. If it's in Christ, that's the object. If it's to Christ, that's the object. If it's into or unto Christ, that's the object. But they, he uses a different preposition when he's talking about the saints. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Ace. So why would you confuse Tors with the saints when he doesn't use that word pros? He's actually using two prepositions, pros and ace, which can have similar meanings, and the NASB translates them both as towards. So your love is directed towards the saints. I'm saying if you would have never brought it up, I would have never thought about it. Yes, I know, I know. But the commentators do bring it up. And, and, we have to think about it because it's there in front of us. So now we've thought about it and have worn out your brains. That's the reason you needed your oxygen and your sugar high to go through this. Remember that. I gave you, I gave you your break, you see, so that you'd be ready for this. Art. Not the way he's using faith towards the Lord Jesus here in this phrase. If you're going to think in parallel terms, namely, that faith which is toward the Lord Jesus, and that's the same thing that love is toward the saints, no, 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 no. You have faith in another person because you trust them, okay? But you're not relying upon them for salvation. You're not depending upon them for what one depends upon with respect to the Lord Jesus. But you might trust them in a certain sense because they trust Christ. But so you're not trust you're not trusting them as you trust Christ. Right. I know. Right. Okay. So you know so so you know that. You know how you're using Never mind. Thank I'm glad you said never mind. I'm not I I take advantage of that, Randy. Yes, God. same prepositional word ace when he says so we have believed in Christ and so that's when he's actually using that for Christ so it's not like he's using a weaker preposition here ace as opposed to post you know for, for human beings as opposed to Christ which is the reason the NSB translates them both towards directed towards okay we've exhausted that very good now, my suggestions are obviously tentative. I'm very dogmatic about them, but they're tentative. I want you to know I don't want any arguments about them, but they're still tentative. I'm very liberal and open-minded about them, but I don't want to hear any more about it. Okay. Seriously, this is merely a suggestion, but it's a suggestion for solving what appears to be a difficult exegetical sequence. So we have to face the sequence, and this is my proposal for how we could solve it without saying something which we don't think, particularly as Protestants, is biblical. All right, now moving on. Verse 6. He uses his term fellowship here. But what is the content of this fellowship? What is this fellowship about in this verse? What what in this verse tells you what this fellowship is about? 
Five verses says sharing of your faith. Mm. So you're saying it's a fellowship of faith? Yes, about sharing. Sharing faith. Heart? My translation says fellowship of your faith. Fellowship of your faith. How about the knowledge of every good thing? That in fact, the fellowship that he has is the fellowship that is common. It's not just that the faith is common, but it's the fellowship of the knowledge of every good thing. Now, I want to expand upon what that every good thing is because this suggests a participatory dimension. That is, he has fellowship by participating in the good thing that Philemon participates in. He identifies his fellowship with the good things that he experiences with the same good things that Philemon experiences. And what are those good things? What does this fellowship of faith participate in with respect to the knowledge or understanding of good things? Well, go ahead. Jesus Christ is the object. Okay, what about Jesus Christ? What about the good things? What good thing is in Jesus Christ that he has fellowship and participates and identifies with along with Philemon? Forgiveness. Where does the forgiveness come from? What event? The cross of Jesus, the death of the Lord Jesus. So he has fellowship in participating by faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which he receives forgiveness of sin. Any other participation? Any other identification? He identifies in the death of Christ. He identifies, Ben? Hope of eternal life. life. Okay, but what event? The resurrection of Christ. Okay, so he identifies, he participates in the knowledge of the good thing in Christ's resurrection, which is victory over death. Anything else? Here's the death of Christ, which is a good thing. They both participate in it. Here's, here's the resurrection of Christ, they, a good thing. They both participate in it. It's every good thing under heaven, period. The life of Christ. Why do you leave the life of Christ out? You're Protestants. You're evangelicals. Why do you leave the life of Christ out? What does the life of Christ give you? What do you participate in in participating in the life of Christ? Ben? What do you receive? What do you receive? From, what good thing do you receive from the life of Christ? His life. His life? What about his life? Mary? Let's say it better. Perfect righteousness. Because when we say perfect righteousness, we're talking about justification. Right? Aren't you justified by faith alone? What do you receive by that faith alone in justification? You receive the righteousness of the life of Christ. You receive the forgiveness of the death of Christ. In Romans 4.25, you receive the acquittal of the resurrection of Christ. So what are these good things? Well, at least they are the good things you get from his life. 
He lived in history, a righteousness for you. He gives you that righteousness of 33 years. He says, it's yours, free. You should be jumping up and down with that. The righteousness of God given to you without price, freely imputed, charged to your account. That's what the confession says. That's what the catechism says. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The righteousness from what? From his righteous life. You need that life of Christ for your justification. But just being declared righteous doesn't clear you of the guilt that you've incurred when you were unrighteous. So how are you going to get rid of the guilt that you've got built up? From the... From the... From the... It's got to be something Jesus did. From the death of Christ. So you need the life of Christ for your justification because you need his righteousness. Otherwise, you're not going to be given, you're going to be declared righteous. You need the death of Christ in order to clear your guilt and remove your condemnation. But Paul says in Romans 4.25, you need something more. You not only need the life of Christ, the death of Christ, but you also need the resurrection of Christ for your justification. He puts all three of those historical events. Or is the Christ you believe in an abstraction? He never actually did anything in history for you. It's just an idea. You can dismiss 33 years of his life of perfect righteousness and think that you can leave that out of your definition of justification or salvation. He lived that for you in history. You never lived it in any of your history. It's absolutely essential that you have that life of righteousness for your own. And he says, come unto me and I give it to you freely. Love it. Hold on to it. Trust it. Believe in it. It's an event in history. It's not an idea. It's not a doctrine per se. It's not a will-o'-the-wisp. It's not an abstraction. It's a historical reality. It's a fact of history. Even as his death is a fact of history. Even as his resurrection is a fact of history. At least those good things united Paul and Philemon in the participation of the fellowship of faith in Christ. They possessed the benefit of his life perfect righteousness. They possessed the benefit of his death, perfect forgiveness. They possessed the benefit of his resurrection, perfect, everlasting life, victory over death. Hold on to the historical Jesus. Hold on to the historical Christ. He is crucial, crucial to your Christian life. And so, In his life, you thank God for righteousness. In his death, you thank God for forgiveness. In his resurrection, you thank God for victory over death, resurrection unto life eternal. Those are precious gifts to you. Precious gifts by the participation of the fellowship of the knowledge of every good thing in Paul and Philemon. Now, what about this through every good thing 
phrase that he uses. <clears throat> oh, incidentally, <clears throat> I skipped over effective there. <clears throat> that it becomes effective. Well, meaning it's going to become more precious. I hope you go away tonight thinking of the life of Christ more precious than you ever thought about it before. The death of Christ more precious. The resurrection of Christ more precious. To be effective in you. Because you realize it, you participate in it. It belongs to you. What he did, he did for you. All right, so he makes this effective by making it more precious and even richer. Including whom? Including whom with respect to this epistle? Onesimus, exactly. Philemon wants, Paul wants Philemon to know that Onesimus has experienced every good thing in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. So, bring that effectivity, the, the rich effect of that, bring that to bear upon Philemon's understanding and, understand, and, and awareness. All right, now through every good thing. <clears throat> What's he mean through every good thing? Of course, I've not talked about it this way. I've talked about every good thing in terms of the events <clears throat> of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And I've kind of precluded the answer to this question. <clears throat> but nonetheless, does through every good thing mean performance? Does it mean ethical Acts. Okay. Is it is it something that is done? That is, you do it for effect, or is it something that's received? Is this through a through of doing good things? Or is this through a receiving of good things? Is it ethically active? <laughs> are the good things things done? Or are the thing good things things received? They are received. We're not denying that they manifest themselves, but the through here does not mean an ethical doing. It's not works. He's not suggesting through these good thing works that you've done. No, it's through the good thing works that Christ has done that you've received. It's the effect of that upon your own life. All right. Now, verse 7. I've mentioned Jeff Wyma before in his very fine book, <clears throat> the uh, introductions to Paul's letters and his article uh, in the Ptolemy version on Philemon in which he uh, summarizes that argument and applies it specifically to Philemon. But Professor Wyman <clears throat> argues that this verse does not belong to the thanksgiving. <clears throat> this verse <clears throat> belongs to the body of the letter and so the body of the epistle begins at verse 7, not at verse 8. His argument is <clears throat> that the word for, which in Greek is gar, the word gar, <clears throat> which can mean because, is initiating 
or, or starting a whole new unit. Is that the case? Is for here a because I'm going on to say something more? Or is for here a conclusion of what I've already said? In other words, is verse 7 continuous with verses 5 and 6? Or is verse 7 a new unit altogether? Why would it matter? Why Because if you look at the bottom of your sheet, answer your own question. You'll notice the chiasm at the bottom of your sheet. If verse 7 does not belong to verses 5 and 6, what happens to the chiasm? It falls apart. It collapses. So, chiasm helps us answer this question, namely, that this is a part of a unit. This is part of a rhetorical unit. Now, that's not all that uh, argues for the for here being continuous. Notice what verse 7 does. It uses vocabulary which has already been used in verses 5 and 6. It therefore is summing up or concluding the thought of verses 5 and 6 as the chiastic pattern demonstrates structurally or schematically. How does he do this? How did Paul come to have much joy in Philemon's love and in his treatment of the saints whom he refreshed by what? Yes, Onesimus tells Paul, but what did he tell him? We don't know, do we? We don't know the specifics of what Paul commends Philemon for. He has much joy in his love. He refreshes the hearts of the saints. How and in what detail did he do it? Paul does not elaborate. So that is unknown. That it was done, we do know. The specifics of what were done, we do not know. Why doesn't Paul mention any of them? Why doesn't Paul bring any of those indications, those actual deeds of love and refreshing, uh, 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 tender refreshments towards the heart of the saints? Why doesn't he bring any of those details into this letter? Why does he seem to avoid them? Or why does he leave them out? True. But here he's using this captatio benevolentiae. He's capturing Philemon's goodwill. Why wouldn't he indicate, I know some of these things which also ingratiate me in goodwill to you and you in goodwill to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Is it conceivable that he does not specify anything here because his focus is upon one good thing and one good thing only? 
And he will not muddy the waters with any other good thing because he has come to plead for one good thing solely. Is it possible that Paul doesn't take advantage of particulars here because there is one particular that he does want to take advantage of? And what would that be? Turn loose. Refreshing of the heart of the saints. Not to turning loose. He doesn't say that, Randy. What does he say? I'm using my imagination. <laughs> you told me to do that. Forget what I told you. Not yet. Now, I want the now. I don't want the not yet, yet. Yes, he wants him to receive Onesimus as a brother. He wants him to receive him. as That's the one good thing he wants Philemon to recognize. And so he's not going to, shall we say, cloudy up the discourse with other details which are extraneous to the one central feature. All right, now, we will address your imagination eventually, Mr. Moore. But you have to be patient through these things. All right. Nonetheless, thank you for causing us to use our imaginations and to try to follow you. Yes. I didn't follow you. Is is anybody else lost on on what I'm featuring here? Go ahead. Is he talking to Philemon or to Onesimus? He's talking to Philemon here. And so every good thing is every good thing that he shares with Philemon. But he's not going to talk about the specifics of what those good things are. They've been reported to him. And as was pointed out, it's Onesimus who's carried the report. But he doesn't detail them. That's my point. He doesn't specify them. So we don't know what the particular good things were. The answer was so that he would see him as a brother. Who's the brother here? This brother is Philemon. He calls him brother. He wants him to see Onesimus as his brother? Eventually, yes. It's later on in the book. <clears throat> later, later on in the epistle. Uh, Art? Is there time for a comment on what you just said? Sure. Okay. So you mentioned... You're if I let him comment with a runaway imagination... <laughs> so, so you made the point that verse 7 is really part of the Thanksgiving unit. Yes. And the Thanksgiving unit starts in verse 4 and goes Co- to verse 7. Correct. It, seems, uh, it also seems that verse 7 seems to follow from verse because he's thanking my God always and does four mean because? yes it can mean so so because I have come to have much joy and comfort that's a good reason to thank somebody very good thank you that's a good observation it's consistent with his prayer of thanks even at the top very good Scott could we summarize your response to to Sharon by saying um, he doesn't want to focus on any particular past good deeds that Philemon does because he wants to focus on one particular good deed he wants Philemon to do in accepting Onesimus. Fine. Yeah, okay. Does that help? 
Okay. Scott, you helped my wife. Okay. Okay. Now, the heart here is the deep seat of emotions in the whole Bible. It's called in the King James the bowels, which doesn't tend to suggest the heart to us, but uh, it's it's the the way of the, the feeling of the emotions, the deep emotional center. The heart here is... Yes, Bob? This is going back a little bit, but in your chiasm in verse 7, the word love is in the first part of the verse. So does that leave out the rest of the verse? It's not part of the chiasm? Uh, I did leave it out, the rest of the verse out. So does that then go into the next section? No, I don't think so. Because I think that the because here in verse 7 ties it into the previous, the first clause, the opening clause. So it, just it overlaps, yeah. Okay. Okay. I am cheating a little bit, I admit that. <laughs> because I stopped at the first verse for the end of the chiasm. <clears throat> And as you'll notice, the word saints appears in the rest of verse 7, so that kind of throws my chiasm off. So it's another reason I leave it out. It messes up my neat chiasm. But now that my, now that my kind of finagling has been revealed, I have to come clean. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears throat> the heart here is Philemon's heart. But in verse 12, whose heart is being described there. Yeah, but who is he? His Paul's heart is Onesimus. And then in verse 20, whose heart do we have there? Paul's heart. All right, the heart of Philemon, the heart of Onesimus, the heart of Paul. Once again, notice this full-orbed, mirror reciprocity, which reflects the heart of Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul in the Lord Jesus Christ. The language of this letter keeps folding itself back upon this participation, identification, joint union, relationship with, in, through Christ. It all comes back to how Christ fits in to the paradigm, and those in Christ fit into the paradigm in him. Art? In my translation, verse 7 says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So it seems like whose hearts would be the saints' hearts? That's what mine says, too. That is true. But Philemon's heart is the heart of one of the saints in Colossae. Because the saints meet in his house. Paul is, indi- Paul is indicating that his heart, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> that the hearts of the saints would be refreshed, including the heart of Philemon. No, he says the hearts of the, of the saints are refreshed through you, Philemon. So you're distinguishing Philemon for that. I'm including Philemon in the hearts. His own heart is being refreshed. It's all in Christ. 
Or are there any ways, are there any other ways for the heart to be refreshed in this, in this uh, context except in Christ? Anyway, that, that, go ahead. Philemon is doing the refreshing. Mm-hmm. He's not being refreshed himself, he is doing something to the other saints. Okay. Refreshing their heart. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Would it, would it be that his heart is refreshed and therefore refreshes others? In other words, he is able to do this because he is refreshed in his heart in Christ. Yeah. Okay? All right. <clears throat> if, if that's acceptable, then I'll leave it there. I'm trying, to fold, I'm trying to fold everybody into the paradigm. I don't want to leave Philemon out, particularly with respect to the center of emotion, the affectional center. Go ahead, Art. So here's another way to not leave Philemon out. In verse 7, he says, Philemon is refreshing the hearts of the saints. And then down in verse 12, he referred to Onesimus, as Paul's very heart. Therefore, it would follow that if Philemon is refreshing the hearts of the saints, that that Onesimus would be one of them. True. And his heart would be, Philemon's heart would be refreshed in the very, very act itself. Okay. Um, all right. We noted that if we take love out of verse seven and separate verse seven from the rest of it, we do not have a uh, a symmetrical uh, pattern throughout this Thanksgiving section. We don't have that chiastic symmetry which we've noted in this unit. The complete mirror reflection is lost if the chiasm collapses. That's another argument for the integrity. That is that these verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 belong together as a rhetorical or literary unit. All right, well, we will go on from here next time with verse 8. Uh, please come back with your scrappy objections and so on and so forth. <clears throat> there are no infallible teachers in this building, so we can all improve and advance in our understanding of the text. I trust that you have also been uh, deepened in your own understanding of the text through what has been said. Shall we pray? We give you thanks, O Lord, for the riches of the grace of the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of faith, for the very good things that are in him, his righteous life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection. And we bless you for the participation of Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul in that mirror paradigm, their lives reflective of the love of Christ Jesus and their hearts directed in faith to trust, confide, and lean upon your dear Son, our Savior and Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.